Computer, initialize Holosuite. Hi everyone and welcome back to the Sci-Fi Feminist. Welcome to this week's episode. Before I get into the episode, I am happy to announce that I moved over from Anchor to Holosuite Media. So from now on, you'll be able to listen ad-free and I'll continue to cover a range of topics from Star Trek to video games to everything regarding current popular media. So I hope that you continue to listen to this podcast and that you enjoy it. That being said, since I cannot make money with this podcast directly, it would be a really big help for me if you go over to the Sci-Fi Feminist YouTube channel and click subscribe on the YouTube channel because once I have 1000 subscribers on YouTube, as you know, I'll be able to monetize it and make some extra cash out of this. Um, I am currently an academic that doesn't really know where I want to go from here on. So I would like to be able to make some money with these podcasts. So please um, do me a favor. If you enjoy this podcast, please go and like the YouTube channel and follow my Instagram account so that I can make some income from this and continue to bring you really fun topics about feminism and women in popular culture. Okay, with all of that out of the way, Today's episode is going to be about one of my favorite, favorite heroines of all time, which is none other than Laura Croft. So when I was eight years old, one of my mom's friends bought me a PlayStation 2 and the first game, I had two games on PlayStation that time and this was my first console that I ever owned. And my two first games were SSX, the snowboarding game, and Lara Croft Tomb Raider, the Angel of Darkness. And initially, uh, Angel of Darkness was too hard for me to play because I was only eight years old that time and I didn't really get it. But then a few years later, I got into the game. And since then, it feels like Lara Croft has just been next to me all my life. When I reached honors level in my fine arts studies, by that time, I guess I was so tired of studying and I had a bit of a personal issue. So what I decided to do for my fourth year fine arts project was to dress up as Laura Croft or to cosplay as Laura Croft for one year. And I was hoping that while cosplaying as her, I would gain that strength and that determination that she has. So that was the decision I made after playing Rise of the Tomb Raider and um, I actually did it for a year. I made her outfits and I cosplayed as her but yeah, unfortunately that didn't solve my problems and um, the problems I had were still there. <laughs> so yes, uh, cosplaying as Lara Croft doesn't work but that did spark my interest in her and for my master's dissertation I wrote about Rise of the Tomb Raider and continuing into my current study she's still a topic of research and investigation so I feel like um, we're basically best friends or sisters we are really close <laughs> me and Laura it feels like I have some personal relationship with her which is why I'm really happy to share my research about Laura Croft at this point in this podcast so during my research, as you know, the Lara Croft, the Tomb Raider games, I divided it into two sections. So there is what I term Old Lara, which refers to Lara Croft from 1996 to 2008, after, what was it, Tomb Raider Underworld. 
And then after that, there was no Tomb Raider games for a few years. And then in 2013, they released the Tomb Raider reboot. And if you are familiar with the franchise and with the character, at that time, they rebooted the character and her representation is much different in the new games than it is in the old Tomb Raider games. So I divided this into old Lara and new Lara. And in today's episode, I will be talking about old Lara and post-feminism. Now, I did spend some time on post-feminism in the previous episode on Wonder Woman. So if you would like more background on post-feminism and how it applies to Wonder Woman or to superheroines specifically, please listen to the episode before this one, episode 7. Today I'll be talking about post-feminism and I'll be sharing a little bit more post-feminist theory than I did in the Wonder Woman episode. And I will apply it in an analysis of old Lara, old Lara Croft. So I hope that you find it informative and that you enjoy it. And then in the next episode, I will be doing a discussion of new Lara and what I discovered about the new version of Lara Croft in all of my research. Right, so let's get right into it. Today's episode is based on a paper that I published in the Game Studies Journal. It's actually open access. So if you are into academic reading and if you would like to read this paper that I wrote, it is there. <laughs> Just look for my name. The paper's name is The New Lara Phenomenon, a post-feminist analysis of Rise of the Tomb Raider. And you know my name is Janine Engelbrecht. So if you would like to read this full paper, it is there and uh, you can find it. Okay, so let's get right into the discussion of old Lara. So just to give some background, if you're familiar with old Lara, she was created in 1996 by a game designer named Toby Gard. So she was actually created by a group of male programmers. And at that time, she is actually the first female character or the first prominent female character that was the heroine of her own video game. So this was obviously totally unheard of in 1996. Most video games had male protagonists and there was this notion of the female characters always being damsels in distress. If you're aware of Anita Sarkeesian's work, she talks about tropes versus women in video games in her YouTube series. And in that series, it exposes all these female characters that were usually just a damsel in distress for the male hero to be rescued. But then Lara Croft came swinging in and she was really the first female character that had agency, that drove the plot, that could shoot and fight, that didn't need to be rescued by anyone. So in that sense, she was really uh, quite revolutionary, transgressive, and this is the first time we see this type of representation in video games. So yeah, this came out two years after I was born. I was born in 1994. Um, which makes Tomb Raider quite old and that makes me quite old too. <laughs> anyway, if you have seen pictures of the earliest version of Lara Croft, despite all of these really good characteristics that she had and the fact that she was the first female hero in video games, she has very big breasts, a very thin waist, wide hips, and she wears a tank top with really short shorts and boots and 
Furthermore, she has twin pistols straddled to her really perfectly shaped thighs, which forces us to look at them all the time. And then the video is a third-person adventure game, so we continually see Lara from behind and we see her lovely round butt all the time as we are navigating the video game. So, as I indicated in the discussion of Wonder Woman, in Lara Croft 2 we see these two really contradictory aspects. First of all, we see a really tough heroine that's really positive representation of femininity because she's not passive, but we also see that she is very sexualized. So let me talk about post-feminism and then we can interrogate why this type of representation exists and how it exists. And basically the conclusion of this will be that Lara Croft, like Wonder Woman, she's both a feminist character and she's not. On Reddit, someone commented, what is the conclusion or what is the punchline of my argument? And this is the punchline. <laughs> Actually, there is no punchline. It is both and neither, unfortunately. So anyway, let me stop hammering on about that. Let's go into post-feminism. So post-feminism is, in my opinion, a branch of third-wave feminism, and it is very loosely defined. There are many theories about what it is and what it isn't, which I guess is why it is such a useful framework for discussing a character that is as ambiguous as Lara Croft. So there is a theorist called Sarah Gamble. She says, with its emphasis on individualism and choice, Post-feminism is a backlash against the ground grounds gained by second-wave feminism, which was primarily concerned with the collective feminist struggle for equality. In retrospect, the second-wave feminist consciousness can be considered to have begun in the late 1960s and early 1970s, after approximately five decades of dormancy for feminism, after the suffragettes' plight. Okay, so I'm just going to give a bit of background of feminism and how we got to post-feminism. Okay, so as a continuation of first-wave sentiment, second-wave feminism became concerned with issues such as rape and sexuality, as well as race and class. But then at the turn of the century, so that is like late 1990s, early 2000s, Young feminists felt that second-wave feminism's emphasis on collective histories and political correctness was not relevant to the late capitalist context of the latter part of the 20th century. And some branches of feminism took a turn towards the embrace of individualism and consumerism as a means of female emancipation. Okay, please uh, listen to my discussion on Wonder Woman. I discussed this aspect of post-feminism in there, if you are curious about that. Okay, so like I said, in my opinion, post-feminism is an extension or a part of third-wave feminism because they are both concerned with popular culture and the contradictions that women faced at the turn of the century. Okay, and this is where it becomes a bit complicated because post-feminism has a really weird relationship with third-wave feminism and second-wave feminism and any form of feminism, actually. So, for Stephanie Gens and Benjamin Braben, post-feminism is actually also in direct antithesis to the third wave because it is often found criticizing and undermining second-wave feminist theory and activism 
which is understood to still have strong affiliations with that of the third wave, even though it claims not to. Christina Stasia also acknowledges that unlike third wave feminism, post-feminism rejects the institutional critique made by second wave feminism. Okay, so this is a really limited <laughs> um, account of post-feminism's relationship to other feminisms. And clearly it is a very complicated thing. There's no singular definition for it because it kind of seems that post-feminism is just against any other form of feminism because it views it as old-fashioned, um, but it still also has some things in common, especially with third-wave feminism. Anyway, for the purpose of my discussion, I just consider it to be part of the third wave, mainly because of the notion that it also interrogates popular culture and also because of the time in which it started becoming prolific. Okay, so for Angela McRobbie, she's actually one of my favorite theorists. While engaging in a well-informed and well-intended response to feminism, post-feminism can simultaneously be considered an attempt to undo feminism. As I will show in this discussion of old Lara and post-feminism, the fact that post-feminism rejects institutionalized critiques, reinscribes sexualized images of women in the media with notions of female emancipation, and ultimately fails to break free from the narrow confines of individualistic self-optimization and market relations, this leads me to question the validity of post-feminism as, post as a feminist movement or a feminist enterprise. Okay, those parts of the paper I literally put in because this really smart guy from some other university overseas told me to put that in. Um, if you don't know what that means, don't worry, I also don't really know <laughs> what it means. Okay, but the point is that I remain critical of post-feminism because it's kind of dodgy. Because while claiming to be a critical stance, post-feminism still fuels the manifestation of a particular and, in my opinion, a problematic view of what it means to be an empowered woman in the 21st century in popular culture. And this is exactly my argument in terms of Wonder Woman as well. The feminism that Wonder Woman perpetuates is kind of dodgy and we need to be critical of it and I feel the same about Lara Croft please listen to that episode if um, my statements seem kind of vague at this point okay so a bit more background on post-feminism so it is located within a specific time and place in history which is the late 20th century and early 21st century in Europe in and America in which consumer middle-class aspirations play a key role. In this way, post-feminism is directly linked to the increasing importance of the media and consumer culture in the late 1990s, where second-wave feminism's collective activist struggle was being replaced with individualistic assertions of consumer choice and self-rule. Michel Lazar terms this this emphasis on choice and self-rule and entitled femininity and women are in this sense supposedly and unproblematically entitled to be pampered and pleasured 
and to embrace feminine practices and stereotypes as a means of female empowerment or as a feminist statement. So in the previous episode, I also talked about the Spice Girls, how they perpetuate this notion. One of my students actually did a post-feminist analysis of Ariana Grande's video Seven Rings, and I think that's briefly worth mentioning here. In that music video, we see this emphasis on pink power, on sexualization, on consumerism. She talks about how much money she has, and um, all of these notions are very post-feminist. She's empowered through her sexuality, through her ability to buy whatever she wants. I want it, I got it, she says. (laughs) And she's also empowered through embracing all of those stereotypical girly things, the long hair, the nails, the pink, and even the cutesy culture that we see in some of the shots of the video. Okay, so post-feminist choice therefore perplexingly involves the adoption of consumerism and capitalism as a feminist strategy and the post-feminist woman is encouraged to use her sexuality and her femininity as both active and passive forms of recognition and motivation and agency and her consumer capacity as a form of self-expression. Like I also explained in the previous episode, unfortunately this is a luxury that most women don't have. I don't have the financial means to express my uh, empowerment through buying things that I like. Um, (laughs) I do not want it and then I get it, like Ariana Grande, which is why I've argued that this form of feminism is quite exclusive and it's really a luxury that most normal woman can't afford. So Christina Stasia, she observes this and I think this is quite apt. She says that post-feminist women or women that ascribe to this notion of empowerment are convinced that they live in a post-patriarchy society where feminism is no longer relevant which I think results in post-feminism simply embracing the patriarchal ideologies that it aims to dismantle. I talked about this example in the previous episode too, but I think I'll briefly recap. So Miley Cyrus, (laughs) her video for Wrecking Ball, I used that as an example, swinging nude on a wrecking ball in her music video for Wrecking Ball, as symbolic of her control over her own sexuality, Miley Cyrus is a very good example of post-feminist female empowerment and its failure to address the structural issues that constitute free choice. Her antics in the media, which include the various nude images of herself available on the internet and posted regularly on her Instagram and her Instagram stories, and the ways in which she endlessly presents herself in sexualized terms, I'm reminded of her Super Bowl performance, She perfectly exemplifies what Angela McRobbie sees as the paradoxical premises on which post-feminist empowerment is based. So post-feminism claims that a woman such as Miley Cyrus would be an active subject and her provocative display seen in videos like Wrecking Ball, which frames her as an object of the male gaze, should not be interpreted as enacted sexism even though it clearly invites the male viewer or the female viewer 
to objectify her. Instead, post-feminism argues that as long as Miley Cyrus is doing it out of choice, a sexually liberated and financially independent woman like her, even though she's swinging on this really phallic symbol in the nude, is an active and empowered and therefore feminist subject. And for me, this is one of post-feminism's greatest discrepancies and one of the prime reasons why I agree that it can even be considered anti-feminist because it justifies almost anything a woman does as long as she does it out of her own choice. And I guess this is the argument that has also been made by Emma Watson. She was criticized for showing some skin in a photo shoot, I think, for Vogue magazine, was it? And um, because now she's the ambassador for the He For She campaign and she's very openly feminist. And then she wore this skimpy outfit and then everyone said, how can you call yourself a feminist and dress like that? And her answer was, it is about choice. Because I decide to do it, it's empowering for me and that makes me a feminist. For me, that's quite problematic. I know not everyone thinks that it is, um, but for me, that is quite problematic. Like I explained in the previous episode, not all women have the luxury to make the choice or to do things out of choice. But because of so many structural issues that still exist, many women are still in a position where they don't have agency over their own bodies or control over what happens to their bodies. And therefore, this idea of I did it because it's my choice and I'm empowered because it's my choice is also kind of a luxury. Right, so Stephanie Gens identifies different types of 21st century post-feminist representations of women in popular culture. There are a few. She identifies the housewife heroine, the superwoman, and there was another one, and then the supergirl. So um, it was interesting, the housewife heroine, she discusses Nigella Lawson, the cook. Um, that's quite an interesting discussion. And the book is called Post-Femininities in Popular Culture. So you might want to look out for that book if you want to read up more about that. I really like the way she writes. It's not difficult to understand. I really don't like it when academics write in this really difficult way because that just makes me want to put the book down and not look at it because it's difficult. So I really like the way this book was written and it discusses these different representations of post-feminist femininities in popular culture. So then one she identifies is called the Supergirl who is the modern-day action heroine that problematizes passive femininity and active masculinity in terms of diametrical opposition and mutual exclusivity. So, in other words, what the Supergirl does is she questions the notion that women are passive and that men are active, because she's a woman and she's active. So, in that way, the Supergirl presents this new idea of femininity. Most significantly, in the late 20th century, in which post-feminism gained prominence, it is also the era in which Lara Croft first appeared, so that's around 1996, along with other young, girly heroines in video games, film and television. So some of the ones that Christina Stasia mentions are The Charlie's Angels, Miss Congeniality, Elektra, and Eon Flux. 
And then in video games, we have Syriza from Bayonetta and Rain from Blood Rain. I actually watched the Bayonetta movie and I thought it was a kiddies movie, but then uh, about halfway in, I realized that it's not. <laughs> there was a lot of uh, boobs in that movie. <laughs> uh, anyway, so all of these uh, representations, they fall into the category of post-feminist supergirls. And it's quite interesting, the new Charlie's Angels movie too, it... Um, you would think that there would have been a progression since 2001 when the first Charlie's Angels came out but oh it's not 2001 2000 but there isn't really there are still these really archetypal post-feminist supergirls in the Charlie's Angels movie maybe something I'll touch on again in a later episode okay so Laura Croft old Laura in her old manifestation she is also a supergirl in an interview with Face magazine in 1997, Toby Gard, who I mentioned is Lara's creator, claimed that Lara, so the interviewer asked him, is Lara a, a feminist icon or not? And then he said, she's neither a feminist icon nor a sexist fantasy, but she's more accurately a bit of both. His quote, and I quote, strong independent women are always the perfect fantasy girls. The untouchable is always the most desirable. So that's what he said. So Gard's description of old Laura perfectly exemplifies the flaws inherent in the post-feminist identity because women consume images of themselves that blatantly sexualize them and perpetuate sexist stereotypes. And then they reinscribe these images with concepts of female empowerment, like I explained about Miley Cyrus. According to Gens, Stephanie Gens, the post-feminist supergirl, like Laura Croft, adopts certain characteristics traditionally associated with masculinity as a means of empowerment, such as strength and action, yet she not only maintains, but she displays an exaggerated physical feminine femininity or exaggerated physical feminine attributes. Like I explained, Laura Croft has very big breasts, especially in the beginning, a very thin waist and a very big butt. Um, and her proportions are actually similar to Barbie's, which has also received a lot of criticism over the years for presenting a doll that um, that is problematic for young girls to play with because they think that Barbie is what a real woman looks like and no one looks like Barbie, <laughs> except that woman that turned herself into Barbie from Russia, I think. You can Google it. It's quite uh, something to see. So, yes, Lara Croft's physical femininity is exaggerated, but so is masculinity in terms of her actions. The Supergirl therefore performs a paradoxical cu cultural function as she both contests and reaffirms normative absolutes and stereotypes, being both a feminist icon and a patriarchal token. For some feminists, on the one hand, Laura Croft is nothing more than a male fantasy because she was created by a man and her body is idealized and sexualized and the third-person camera angle allows the predominantly male player in the 1990s to constantly see Laura's body in full view from behind. Laura's violence also appeals to mainly male players who are invited to simultaneously identify with her and objectify her. 
That is what Maya Mikula said, one of the theorists on Laura Croft. Can then, on the other hand, some feminists celebrate old Laura as a feminist icon, and they instead view her idealized body as a symbol of power and self-control because she uses this body to fight and not to get a date or to, I don't know what else women do <laughs> with their bodies, to um, sleep with me, people. <laughs> so there's also no indication of Laura's hetero or homosexuality which allows fans to reconstruct her identity indefinitely on various fan forums and blogs. So old Laura's primarily, primary subversive potential therefore lies in the fact that she's an empty signifier, which can become anything that consumers want her to be, and thus opens up the possibility of feminist appropriation of the character. So what I mean about that, by that is that Lara, and this is what another theorist explained about her, she has very few individuating features. So she kind of looks like everyone and no one at the same time. So because of that, it's very easy to put her into different contexts and reappropriate her. And that can be really transgressive because it means that feminists or women can put her into any kind of situation that highlights the more empowering aspects of her. But then you get some instances where this doesn't happen. One of these is the various manifestations of old Laura in magazines, on magazine covers, and in ads. So there's this one magazine cover on Loaded magazine where Laura is seen in her underwear, uh, only panty, without a bra and she's holding a pillow and then she's kind of really seductively looking at the viewer who is probably a male who buys loaded magazine she's also featured in playboy like bayonetta so because of this aspect of her it is supposed to be something that allows her to move beyond her sexualization but instead her sexualization just gets reinforced and we see this on the magazine covers and the various ways in which she manifests in different media. There's of course also the nude raider hack. It's quite infamous. Um, someone created a skin. So it's like a, a mod that you install on your old Tomb Raider game. I think this one was only in like the really first Tomb Raider games. You can't do that now anymore. Or maybe you can. I don't know. I don't look for things like that. But uh, the nude raider hack actually allowed players to play with Laura in the nude. So it made her completely naked. And then you play Tomb Raider with Laura being completely naked. So, yeah, unfortunately, I think the fact that she's an empty signifier and that she so easily translates between different platforms or different forms of media, although it might be empowering, at the end of the day, it's not. Okay, so Christina Stasia actually did an analysis of the Tomb Raider movie from 2001 starring Angelina Jolie as Tomb Raider, as Laura Croft. So she, Stasia, in this analysis, she kind of explains how Laura Croft is the ideal post-feminist supergirl, though in terms of the way she is portrayed in this movie. So she says in the film, Lara is hyper-feminized and shots focus on Angelina Jolie's breasts and thighs and hips. 
Laura is also young and girlish, and she sells traditional notions of women's power because she always returns to the private sphere, even though she has mobility in the public sphere. So um, that's something weird I noted about Hunger Games too. I don't understand why Katniss, at the end of this entire ideal, she's seen feeding kids in this really flowery dress next to Pita, like right at the end. It's like she has mobility in the public sphere and she can be this tough action heroine in the public sphere when she needs to, but at the end of the day she returns to domesticity. And actually I really liked Hunger Games, but that final scene just really ruined the whole thing. And um, all of Katniss's great potential as a feminist character was kind of ruined for me in that instance. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> Back to Laura Croft. So despite this, uh, despite Stasia's argument that Laura sells traditional notions of women's power, Helen Kennedy affirms that the transgressive stunting body described by Mary Russo, where female figures undermine conventional understandings of the female body by performing extraordinary deeds, is also replicated in the figure of Old Lara. In both the Tomb Raider films and the Tomb Raider video games, the old Tomb Raider films, I mean, and the old Tomb Raider video games, Lara Croft inhabits a hostile masculine environment not traditionally associated with the feminine, private or domestic space and she also rejects patriarchal norms. In this way, Lara, as a post-feminist supergirl, is a liminal character who exists between extremes. She is simultaneously masculine and feminine, human and monster, good and evil, and feminine and feminist. Okay, I don't think feminine and feminist should be on two opposite ends of a spectrum, but that's a discussion for another day. Importantly, as a supergirl, she's also both beautiful and strong, and she claims her femininity as the source of her strength, like Wonder Woman also does, which is a tactic that post-feminism uses to infuse old signifiers of helpless, helpless femininity with new meanings of strength and agency. So sexualization and feminization, along with empowerment and agency, are therefore important ingredients of the potent cocktail that is the post-feminist Supergirl and old Lara, who is ultimately unthreatening because she is the impossible ideal. That part about the potent cocktail is something my supervisor added, and I always smile when I read that because it's so apt <laughs> right so Lara Croft is unthreatening because she is the impossible ideal and for me that is also you know she she's allowed to be a feminist character and to be read as a feminist character but at the end of the day she is totally unattainable for most women and she presents a form of empowerment that actually doesn't really exist that is just my opinion Okay, moving on, she's also been discussed alongside 1990s femme fatales. Is that how you say it? I say femme fatales, but I think it's femme fatales in film. So just to briefly elaborate on that, the femme fatale is sexually attractive and dangerous to the male hero because she is unknowable, mysterious and self-centered. According to Amanda Dupree, also one of my favorite theorists and one of the professors at our university. 
Lara shares characteristics of the archetypal femme fatale who subverted gender norms of in the 1940s. In the sense that Lara is beautiful but out of reach, she seduces without giving herself. And old Lara's untouchability and aloofness is reminiscent of the femme fatale as well as the fatale's indifference to the male gaze. As old Lara is oblivious to the obnoxious, perverted behavior, and I quote, that was a quote, obnoxious, perverted behavior by male players. Formal analysis of Lara as representative of the post-feminist Supergirl have mostly been done on the Tomb Raider films released in 2001 and 2003, but another theorist theorist named Kim Walden provides an account of video game heroines' influences on film heroines. Walden observes that film Lara mimics video game Lara, so she is, at the end of the day, a representation of a representation who has no immediate real-world reference. So actually, and I thought this was pretty cool, Lara doesn't exist in any real sense. She's pixels. And then they created a film version of her that is based on this woman that doesn't exist. And that is also the impossible ideal. In other words, old Lara is a heroine who is created from a combination of media vernaculars. So interestingly, after the release of the two Tomb Raider movies that starred Angelina Jolie as Lara, you'll notice that from 2002 onwards, from Tomb Raider and the Angel of Darkness, Lara starts mimicking Angelina Jolie's appearance. She starts looking like Angelina Jolie. And when I got the game in 2002, that is when she started looking like Angelina Jolie, I actually, as a child, I thought this is the Angelina Jolie game. I'm playing as Angelina Jolie, but actually it's Lara Croft. So that's quite interesting. And this is pretty cool what happened here. Another theorist named Bob Rehak, Bob Rehak, I think that's how you say it. He further elaborates on this complicated relationship between Lara and real life Lara Croft models. So Rona Mitra, I don't know if you know the actress, she's absolutely gorgeous. She was in a movie called Doomsday, I think, as well as the third Underworld movie. That is the prequel to the one starring, what was her name, Kate Beckinsale. Uh, Rona Mitra, she played the vampire's daughter. Yeah, she's quite gorgeous and I don't know why she hasn't been in more movies. But she was actually one of the most famous Lara Croft models. You can Google it. She was a very good Lara Croft model. She looked exactly like her. But then she was fired as a Lara Croft model because she claimed in an interview that she is Lara. She said, I am Lara. I am her. And that was too much. And so they fired her. So thereafter, uh, Ados, the developer from 1996 to 2003, they attempted to maintain Lara's multiplicity, which is her ability to simultaneously exist on various platforms, by instructing Lara Croft models to always refer to Lara in the third person. So they're not allowed to say that they are Lara because then Lara becomes too real and then she's not able to jump between different platforms as easily as she does but this is quite ironic because after 
the Tomb Raider movie starring Angelina Jolie, actually Lara Croft started resembling Angelina Jolie. And now, you know, when you look, when you mention old Lara, lots of people say, "Oh, it's Angelina Jolie," because she looked just like her in Tomb Raider, in Angel of Darkness, and then Tomb Raider Legend, and also Tomb Raider Underworld. So I thought that was quite interesting. And you seen, you didn't see that. Angelina Jolie was fired <laughs> because of that. Okay, but what this illustrates is Lara's translatability. According to Bob Rehack, Lara's celebrity status and vast fandom subversively blur the lines between producers, texts, audiences, and technologies, as Lara is capable of cloning herself from one media environment to another and maintaining simultaneous existences in each. Okay, so, um, yeah, like I explained, she was on magazine covers, she was in a LucasAid ad, she was in movies, she was in video games. Lara Croft just really easily translates into all different forms of media. And this is exactly what this theorist Bob Rehag is explaining. Angelina Jolie to some extent made Lara Croft more real for fans, especially since Lara Croft started to resemble her in the subsequent Tomb Raider games. But this interestingly did not hinder old Lara from migrating between different media environments, which is why they fired Rona Mitra in the first place, because they were scared that if someone claims that they are Lara or that they look exactly like Lara Croft, that Lara will not be able to clone herself so easily between these media environments, but then that didn't happen. For Mary Flanagan, these characteristics, amongst others, contribute to Lara's status as the first digital star in history. That's quite cool. According to Flanagan, the digital star system questions signifiers, identities, and the bodies themselves as these bodies are not only looked at, but also controlled by the player. The representation of this body addresses the particular place of gender in these embodiment relationships and provides the potential for the subversion of traditional notions of gender. I remember one theorist talking about the fact that, and I think this is stretching it a bit, for me this is stretching it a bit, but I will explain what the theorist said. So he said that, why, as male gamers play Tomb Raider, they become transgendered because they get the opportunity or they have the experience of wearing a female body because they are Lara Croft in the virtual world. Now, I don't know how true that is because Lara Croft still acts like a traditional male hero. <laughs> so um, that is stretching it for me a little bit. But anyway, that is what the person said. I would be interested to hear your thoughts. Do you feel like you become transgendered when you play as a male or female character in a video game? I don't know. They say these new forms of identification are possible in video games because we control the player and we play as the player and the not as the player as the avatar or the character and then the avatar becomes an extension of ourselves in the virtual world. Uh, recently I played Red Dead Redemption 2 and with that one you're forced to play as a male protagonist and um, to be honest I did not feel like I became a guy <laughs> because I am a guy in Red Dead Redemption 
so yeah for me anyway that's a bit of a stretch but um yeah i would like to hear your comments on, on that so clearly old laura is a really multifaceted character and her status as a feminist character is really ambiguous like it is for wonder woman as well old laura's representation is like feminism post-feminism simultaneously problematic and subversive now this is for next week in my estimation i feel like the new version of laura croft is much less ambiguous and that is what next week's episode will be about. So yes, that is it on old Lara. That is not all the research there is on her, but I guess it is a good introduction or a good overview of the character and her status as a feminist character. So yes, I hope that you really enjoyed this episode and then look forward to part two, where I discuss the new version of Lara Croft. Obviously, there's not as much written on the new version of her, but that is where... I gave a lot of my opinion of what I think about her as a feminist character or not. So yes, please look forward to that episode. And thank you once again for listening. This is the Sci-Fi Feminist bidding you farewell and a good week ahead. And everyone live long and prosper. Bye-bye. This show is brought to you by Hollow Sweet Media. Computer. List other available Holosuite media programs. Loading Holosuite Preview Program 4, Blast Shield, a Star Trek Lower Decks podcast. I think we all thought Ransom was going to go into that fight scene, thinking that it was game over before it even started and he was going to lose. But I think the moment he rips his uniform off, <laughs> yeah. which is hard anyway to rip a shirt, but to rip an actual like jacket like that, mm. pretty impressive. And then he had like about, I don't know, I think it was like 62 abs. He just looked ripped and then he was just like you know a little bit of this yeah a little bit of that i was just gonna say it was the way that he also narrated it it was just perfect it was great ransom definitely went to the school of kirk foo ransom foo maybe we should be calling it loading holosuite preview program for the janeway a star trek voyager podcast and it wouldn't surprise me in the sex cabin if the table's wonky because the amount of times that oh. Aaron tom's probably jumped on there it's yeah, gotta be probably sticky. damaged it Oh, <laughs> you know that table's sticky. Oh, Suzanne, it's in the sex cabin. It it's a table not sticky. just for pool balls. <laughs> it's a table not just for pool balls. No. <laughs> yeah, the the thing, the scary thing is, is you don't know for sure what that sticky is because mm. nobody's going to test it. Nobody. <laughs> Nobody. Computer, deactivate Holosuite.